Lord, we ask you to bless this time as we look at your word. We ask your guiding and leading as we go through this and your spirit to show us what you would want us to see. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. So we're going to be in 2 Chronicles 33. Uh, we've been looking at Manasseh. And remember, Manasseh followed his father, who was a good king, uh, and prayed and set up everything correctly with, with God, uh, gave him a great kingdom. And the first thing Manasseh did was go back to all the old idols and, and all the problems. And then in the, somewhere, somewhere in his king reign, he was taken captive, taken to Babylon, and then he finally humbled himself and prayed, and God returned him back to Jerusalem to be king. So this is where we're at with this. He's been humbled, and this is where we're going to be at in chapter four, uh, verse 14. Now after this, he built a wall without the city of David on the west side of Gihon in the valley, even to the entering in of the fish gate that compassed about Ophel and raised it up a very great height and put captains of war on, in all the fenced cities of Judah. And he took away the strange gods and the idol out of the house of the Lord and all the altars that he had built in the, in the mount of the, of the house of the Lord and in Jerusalem and cast them out of the city. And he repaired the altar of the Lord and sacrificed thereon peace offerings and thanks offerings and commanded Judah to serve the Lord God of Israel. Nevertheless, the people did sacrifice still in the high places yet unto the Lord their God only. All right, so here is his, he's returned from this cap, captivity where he should have been for the rest of his life but his repentance gave him back his kingdom. And the very first thing he did is he repaired the wall of Jerusalem. All right, this is this whole long description of it. He built a wall around the city of David, uh, gave the directions from Gihon to the fish gate, to Ephel, and he says he raised it a very great height. And he put captains of war in the fenced cities of Judah. So he has been captured so that was damage done to Jerusalem and and all of this and as soon as he gets back his first priority is to make the city protected and to get captains of war out into the cities all around him so that was his first priority How long was he it does not say in this in this section and I don't remember if it said anything in Kings um, he was taken in and he pretty quickly from everything I've read repented kind of realized I'm, I'm getting what I deserve and he repented and was sent back and the first thing he does now I would think if I was in his place that my first uh, plan of attack would be to cleanse the temple and the and the altars he does that second all right so in this case he's still thinking like the world and doing what's best for the work by the world's decision because obviously from the king's position the best thing is get my capital city built back up and get some get some defenses out there for me. So from a world position, he's doing what's right. He's rebuilding the, the walls. He's getting himself established with, with some leaders out there so that if any enemy comes back, his hope is that I can now defend myself. So this is his first priority. And then it says, and he took away the strange gods and the idol out of the house of the Lord and all the altars that he had built in the mount of the house of the Lord and in Jerusalem and cast them out of the city. So remember, before he was captured, we talked about how he put altars to all these gods 
in the temple, right? In the, in the outer court, in, in the temple, and apparently from the description, he actually put them in the holy place, at, at, at least, if not the holy of holies. So he gets back and he says, okay, I'm going to strengthen the city, and he gets rid of those gods that he had made. He gets rid of all the altars that he had, that he had put in place. And remember, he had led Israel astray. Under Hezekiah, the people were worshiping God. Now, under Manasseh, they were worshiping every god except God, including going to the altar. Can you imagine? You go to church, and there is an altar to Astora and Moloch and Baal and all these idols in church. This is what he did in the temple. He built these idols and their altars in the tavern in the in the temple. And the, you know, I couldn't imagine you know how awful this. Now he's not the only king that's done that. We've seen other kings do this. So he had gone way off the deep end. His father, you know, uh, trained him up and got Israel right. And he goes way off the deep end. And then he comes back and he gets rid of all these idols. He says, "Okay, I am going to obey God." And it says he cast them out of the city. And in verse 16, and it says, And he repaired the altar of the Lord and sacrificed thereon peace offerings, thanks offerings, and commanded Judah to serve the Lord God of Israel. So he comes back and he rebuilds God's altar inside the temple. Gets rid of all the other altars, rebuilds it. I'm not sure. I'm sure he didn't do it himself. He probably got the priest and the Levites to do this. But he rebuilds it and then he says, I'm now going to offer peace offerings and thanksgiving offerings. So remember, the peace offerings were the offerings that brought peace to God and thanksgiving offerings were kind of a joyful offering. This was peace offerings were kind of commanded by God and you offer those for, to show your dedication to him. And the thanksgiving offerings were ones that you did out of your own free will. And we have these offerings over and over again in the scriptures. Some of the offerings that were, mandat were mandatory, God said, you will do these. Passover, Yom Kippur, uh, Rosh Hashanah, th those ones that are out there that are mandatory. Three times a year, all the men of Israel were supposed to go to the temple to offer sacrifices. And so... There were the mandatory, your burnt offering, uh, your, your sin offering was a mandatory offering that you were to give. Now, the peace offering and the thanksgiving offering were voluntary. This is saying, God, I love you so much, I'm now giving you these offerings. And the, peace, uh, the thanksgiving offering, we've talked about this several times. On the thanksgiving offering, you brought in your, your, your uh, sheep or your cow, the uh, priest would offer the sacrifice, all the innard part and one, one of the shoulders were burnt to God. The priest would get about a, the other half of the animal for celebration, then you'd get back about half of it, and you had to eat the whole thing with you and whoever else you could get to help you eat it within 24 to 48 hours, depending on the reason you were giving this. So I heard one pastor, and I love his description, he called it a party with God. <laughs> you know, you gave God his portion, you took back, and you had a great big party saying, hey, we got to eat this thing, we got to eat it now, so you all have as much, as much of this beef as you want over the next uh, 24 or 48 hours. Uh, and you just had a great big feast celebrating God. Uh, and so this is what Manasseh's come back. He says, I'm getting rid of all these other idols uh, that we had out there. And he says he offered 
these offerings to God. And then he said he commanded Judah to serve the Lord God of Israel. Now this is a revival, basically starting from the king again. He's saying it is time to worship God. Get rid of all these other idols. And basically saying forget about all these idols I brought in. I was a fool. <laughs> worship God. And this is his command to Judah. Worship God. And this is where we are in our country right now. Our country started by worshiping God back in the 1600s. We have gotten so far away from God that the only hope for our country is a revival that brings us back to God. And unfortunately, I don't think it's going to happen. But as I've said, you know, every time there's been a revival, everybody would say there's no way it's going to happen. I would love for it to happen. I've got grandkids. I would love them to grow up and have a godly country to grow up in. If we do not have a revival, judgment falls on this country. And we won't have an America as we know it in the way that it has been godly. And we're well on our way to not being a godly nation and godly people. We're already there. The question is, will we have a revival to come back? Manasseh took his people way away from God, and now he's saying, it's time to come back. I, the king, have spoken. Come back to worship God only. Get rid of all the idols. Verse 17 says, Nevertheless, the people did sacrifice still in the high places, yet unto the Lord their God only. So this is kind of an interesting thing. If you know your, the first five books of the Bible, the only place they were to offer a sacrifice was in the tabernacle or the, later on to be the temple. That was the only place you could offer your sacrifice to God. And Manasseh has gotten everybody used to being able to offer sacrifices wherever they were at to whatever gods they wanted. They did seem to halfway return to God. They're only offering sacrifices to God, but they're offering them wherever they feel like offering them rather than going to the temple. Now, this is a serious problem. This is the same thing that happens to us when we kind of halfway decide we're going to repent and come back to God. We go, God, I'm going to read my Bible once in a while and I'll pray, and I'll, but I'm going to do things my way instead of your way. And there's a lot of people that are Christians out there that say, God, I'm doing this my way instead of his way. And we need to be careful of this, trying to do things in our own strength, our own way. Uh, and we say, well, this is so simple. They were, you know, uh, they were just offering uh, offerings wherever. So what's the big deal? The big deal is that God told them not to. And, you know, during our days as Christians, we can worship God wherever we're at. And I get told this all the time, you know, well, I don't have to come to church to worship God. I can worship God on the lake and the mountain and whatever. And my answer is always the same thing. Yes, you can. Are you? When you're out there on the lake fishing, are you worshiping God or are you just enjoying your fishing? When you're in the mountain camping, are you worshiping God or are you out there just enjoying so quote unquote nature? Now, so the question isn't here what were they doing? They just weren't doing what God said to do. And so this is very important. Are we doing things our way? Or do we turn our attention and say, God, I want to do things your way. And for us as Christians, it's a real simple. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. And it's funny because most Christians will recognize that Jesus is the only way, but they live like they're trying to find other ways to get to heaven. 
Well, I've got to do all these good things so that I can please God. Why? You know, are good things wonderful to do? Yes, they are wonderful to do. Should we come to church? Absolutely. Should we read our Bible? Absolutely. Should we come in fellowship with other believers? Absolutely. But if our only reason for doing this is so that I'm pleasing God, I've got the wrong plan. And this is something that's very important for us. There is great value in obedience to God. You know, if we do things his way, there is great benefit and great value. He blesses that. If we do things our own way, God's just up there shaking his head like, okay, why won't you do it the way I told you to? Now, we've all had kids that do things their own way, and we shake our heads and go, and you don't know, you know, what's going on. And this is the thing about God. God is not trying to ruin our fun by telling us what to do. He knows what the things that we want to do will take us to. The you know, same thing when we're dealing with teenagers and young adults, and they're going, you know, I've got this boyfriend or girlfriend, you know, and I'm just going to live with them outside of God's, you know, standard of, of marriage. I'm just going to do things our way, and we're going to do things the way we want to and be, and be good, but we're going to be Christians. And you're going, you don't know what's happening. You don't know the pain this is going to cause. And we need to be careful of when God's rules are there to keep us from having problems in the future. And too often we're going, God, uh, we, you just don't want me to have any fun. All, you know, I, I just want to do the things that I want to do, and I'm sure they're going to be okay. I don't know the future like you do, God, but I'm sure they'll be okay. You know, mom and dad talking to kids. Well, you just don't want me to have fun. You used to do the same thing. And I go, yes, you've, and I know what the problems are that it's going to lead to. Don't do it. And this is God's attitude toward us. He says, I'm giving you these set of rules not to try to control you, not to make you not have fun, but to protect you in the future. They were setting up the idols everywhere. And right now during Manasseh, they're using these idol, these altars, to worship God and not idols. It won't stay that way for long. They'll use these idols, these altars to worship idols in the very near future. And this is the problem when we're doing things our way instead of God's way. It always ends up leading to something other than where we want to be. And I've seen it over and over. I've you know, dealt a lot of times with teenagers and they're going, well, I know that the person I want to date is unsaved, but I'm going to save them. I'm going to lead them to Christ. And the next thing you know, they're not in church anymore because it's easier to be pulled into sin than to pull somebody out of sin. And we see it over and over again where people do things that ultimately hurt them. Well, I don't need to come to church. And, you know, and when they first say that, you'll see them once in a while in church, maybe half, two, every two to three weeks. And after a while, you don't see them because they get busy doing whatever. It's so much fun out there in the world. And then you don't see them. And you're going, where have you been? Oh, well, you know, just got lots of things to do. What kind of things are you doing? And usually they don't want to tell you. <laughs> All right. So here is this problem. They're not being obedient to God, though they're starting to come back. They're starting to, they're worshiping God, they're making the sacrifices unto God on these altars. And it doesn't tell us whether the Levites and the priests are making these offerings, which would be the next question that would be asked. 
you know, only the only the priests are to make an offering. So this is part of the reason everything had to be done in the temple because that's where the priests were. And it doesn't tell us whether other people are making these offerings. And if that's the case, then they're doing things their own way and they're usurping a position of a priest. So they're doing all kinds of problems. <laughs> all right. So we got all these things going on. They're halfway being obedient to God because the king told them to be. And they're being obedient to the king, but not being totally obedient to God. And so verse 18. Now the rest of the acts of Manasseh and his prayer unto God and the words of the seers that spoken to him in the name of the Lord God of Israel, behold, they are written in the book of the kings of Israel. His prayer also and how God entreated of him and all his sins and his trespasses and the places wherein he built high places and set up groves and graven images before he was humbled. Behold, they are written in among the sayings of the seers. So Manasseh slept with his fathers, and they buried him in his own house, and Ammon, his son, reigned in his stead. So here is just the story that there's more information about Manasseh. In this case, we do know some of the places. The book of the kings is 2 Kings. So if you want to read more about Manasseh, go to 2 Kings. There's quite a bit in 2 Kings about Manasseh. Um, not a whole lot, but more than, more than this section. And he's mentioned throughout the prophets. Lots and lots of the prophets talk about Manasseh. Um, but it talks about how they were written there, his prayer to God, that he entreated God and all of his sins and his trespasses, wherein he, and wherein he built the high places and set up groves and graven images. Now, you know, I, we've talked about this at various times. How would you like to be one of these people that had your sins put into the Bible to be remembered for thousands of years. You know, I, I feel sorry for some of these guys, actually. You know, Manasseh, we're talking about Manasseh 4,000 years later, 3,500 years later, about his sins. <laughs> you know, uh, he did humble himself. He did turn back to God, so I would expect to see him in, in heaven. But we're talking about him 3,500, 4,000 years later. Worse yet, Adam and Eve. 6,000 years later, we're still talking about their sin and how much they hurt humanity. Oh, they, started. <laughs> they started the whole process. Yeah. Yeah. But you think about this. The Bible does not cover sins and bad. God does not cover the sins and bad. Jesus said, you know, told the people, your, your sins will be shouted from the housetops. And in the Bible. You know, and in the Bible for back then. But how many times have we seen this where somebody will not repent and then their sins are opened up and being shown to, to however large it might be? You know, if it's only your family that's affected, then only your family gets to know about your sin, but your sin gets opened up and, and brought out. Uh, how many of our politicians with all of their sins and problems get opened up to the entire world? All right? Business leaders, the same thing. Pastors, you know, that if, that if they won't repent, get their, their sins broadcast to their entire church and if they have a big ministry to the world. We've seen this over and over again. And here is God saying his sins and his trespasses were there. All the high places that he built the groves, which were the, the worship of Astora, the, the totem play fold, they'd ring, ring it with trees. Uh, 
and the graven images before he was humbled, behold, they are written in the sayings of the seers or the prophets. So here it is, he's saying, if you want to know more about him in this story, go to Second Kings, go to the prophets. Now one of the things about Chronicles that we've mentioned before is Chronicles is just kind of glossing over the evil, mentions it enough to know that it's there. But most of the Chronicles is talking about the good things that were in revival, the direction things were headed, rather than all of the negative. Now, First and Second Kings and, and Samuel, they are all about the bad, good and bad of the kings. They are full of all that information. Chronicles just kind of glosses over it and says, we're just pushing how God is protecting his people and keeping his people. And so now we have Ammon. All right. And Ammon was 22 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned two years in Jerusalem. But he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord, as, as did Manasseh his father. For Ammon sacrificed unto all the carved images which Manasseh his father had made and served them and humbled not himself before the Lord as Manasseh his father had humbled himself, but Ammon trespassed more and more, and his servants conspired against him and slew him in his own house, but the people of the land slew all them that conspired against King Ammon, and the people of the land made Josiah his son king in his stead. So at 22 years old, Ammon comes to reign, and it says that Ammon only reigns two years. Now, I'm not sure why, he, why his leaders rose up and slew him after only two, two years. Were they righteous, thinking we should be following God, and they did it? Was, was the worship of all these idols just the tip of the iceberg for Ammon's ev evil desires? Probably. But why they said, it doesn't tell us. Well, he was young, 22 years old, so... Yeah, it's not as young as his son who's going to take over for him or his dad when he took him. And it says he did evil in the sight of the Lord, as did Ammon his father. So he followed after his father's original sins. It always seems that the predecessor is worse than the one before. It's worse and worse and worse. Well, that is true the way it always is. Even with us, when we raise our kids, uh, let's say you're a, you're a, drunken, a drunkard or a, or a drug user or you're promiscuous, you set that example and your children usually, if, they, if God doesn't step in and change them somehow, are worse than the parents. And then their kids, your grandkids, are worse than, than their parents. And without God stepping in, that cycle just gets worse. And it is scary. And we see it again over and over again. Now, we can see it the other direction as well. If somebody is righteous and they raise their kids up in righteous ways, the kids sometimes do better than they are, and then they do better than they are, again, without a backsliding like Manasseh, uh, Ammon did from Manasseh. You know, it's, so it's not 100%, but we do see it. You know, I am very happy that my dad got saved and was able to change it, and I was able to stand on his shoulders where I was spiritually. And I'm watching my children starting at a much higher place than I've started at because I was raising them in, in certain standards. And each one of my kids will always say, you know, I didn't realize how much I learned while I was at home. Because we didn't, we didn't get together and say, okay, now is Bible study time. We just brought God in all the time. The Bible was opened a lot. And we just raised up this idea. And now they're finding out that they are far ahead of most other Christians because 
for two generations, they have, we have been building a, upon God's word. And I'm looking forward to see what can happen to, my, to a great-grandchild someday if God tarries. Because my son is raising our grandson in a godly manner that is going to establish him in a great pattern. And I've shared with you, I love answering questions except from my son and my daughter. They like asking me questions that are hard. Why? Because they already know what I've taught them. So when they come up with something, it is above and beyond what I've taught. So I have to go do some research when they ask questions. So it gets to be interesting when that happens. But, you know, it makes me happy, too. They're starting. They're moving up. We've taught, we've taught them right, and, they're, and they've moved. Ammon does not stay after his father's end-of-life teachings. And this is something that is a big deal. He's going to go the wrong direction. And it says, he did that was, was evil in the sight of the Lord as Manasseh. He sacrificed unto all the graven images that Manasseh, his father, had made and served them. If you want to know what those are, go back to the beginning of chapter 33 and 32 of this chapter, and you'll find out Moloch, Astoroth, Baal, all the gods, the gods of the host of the heavens and everything. He worshipped just about every god there was in the, in the book. And Ammon comes on and says, well, I'm not following what dad did at the end of his life. I'm going back to the beginning of his life. And I'm going to worship all these false gods. And obviously he didn't call them false gods because he's serving them. And it says, and he humbled not himself before the Lord, as Manasseh his father had humbled himself, but Ammon trespassed more. He increased everything he was doing wrong. And this is something, when somebody is under conviction by God, they're going to go one of two ways. They're either going to repent and humble themselves as Manasseh did, or they just go deeper and deeper into sin, not knowing that it's not helping them. You know, the people who are into sin, you know, you keep going deeper and deeper, and sin has a big problem with it. It always requires more of it to get the same feeling. Whether it's drugs, alcohol, sex, it doesn't really matter. It takes more of the evil over a period of time to get the same impact in your life. And you have to, then you reach a point where you're basically totally addicted to it and you're not even getting any of the same impact. You're just addicted. And this is true of all sin. All sin has an addictive character to it. Now some, have, like alcohol and drugs, are highly addictive in, in, in the physical sense. All sin has a psychological addiction to it where you just get hooked on it and you just have to continue it without God giving you a changed heart and a changed life. And we see deeper and deeper falling into these sins. This was Ammon's choice. I'm going to go deeper and deeper into sin. I'm not going to humble myself. I don't care what these prophets are saying. I don't care who's coming to me to tell me that God says to repent. I don't care what the consequences are going to be. I'm going to go full bore into sin. And he does this in two years. He totally tries to destroy Israel in two years. You think he did that in on purpose? So you think maybe God was doing right? I got all so many other gods. God maybe I'm sure that he did things thinking he was doing right, at least at first. Because mm -hmm. why do people get into alcohol and drugs and 
and illicit sexual activities because it feels good. It, it makes me feel good. I, I think I'm doing okay. I'm, I'm fitting into the, with the rest of the crowd. It numbs the pain of the, of the guilt I'm feeling. And then you get hooked on it and you're, you're no, longer, no longer able to make any changes. So yes, I mean, I'm sure he didn't just walk. Well, I think I'm just going to go out and sin. He might have wanted to rebel against his father. Dad was doing this. Dad, dad was a fool. He gave up all these other gods. You know, maybe he remembered, you know, because we don't know how late in, in Manasseh's life that he, he repented. So he might have been raised for several years in the evil. And he's like, what's gone? Dad's gone over the deep end with his religion stuff. You know, and I'm not going to follow this. We're going to go back to the old ways. I, we're, we're not told what his motivation was. Only that he did it. Now we can guess because we know the progression of sin. We know the rebellious nature of kids to their parents. We know the, the rebellious nature of people against God. Uh, so we can kind of draw in some possible. But I'm not going to go much beyond what the Bible says. He was worse than his father. He was worse than his father was at the beginning before he humbled himself. And again, most people that I know do not just decide I am going to go sin. It happens over a long period of time where they get caught up in it. The person who takes their first drink is usually at a party with a bunch of friends and here, this is, this is, this is what we're all doing. And you said it tastes nasty. I'm sure, I'm sure that first, uh, I tried a cigarette one time and I'm going, why would anybody ever do this to themselves? And, and I'm sure I had, and I know that I had alcohol back when I was younger because my dad was an alcoholic before he got saved. And, there, and it was, you know, as most alcoholics, here, son, have a drink. And I have drunk probably just about everything there is to drink, you know, in that because that's what was around the house. But I did not get addicted to it, and I got saved when I was 10 years old, and I did not want to drink. But I had the personality that if I had, I'd have been in trouble. Why did Ammon do what he did? Any number of reasons. Rebellion against Dad just stumbled in and said, I think these are better. And, but the key word is that he got worse and worse as he went along. And he didn't, never humbled himself. He never listened to the prophets. He never improved. And without God, there is no way we can improve. We might get some self-discipline and say, okay, I'm not going to do it for a while. And this is the person going on the wagon as an alcoholic or a, or a drug user or even in, in sexual in per perversions and going, well, I'm not going to do it. And they might do it for a couple days, a couple weeks, a couple months, maybe even a couple years. But when they do fall off, what ends up happening is they go down usually deeper than where they left it from. Because that's what happens. It's just the psychological nature of it. Without coming to Christ and having our life changed, there is no victory over sin. With God in our life, we can have victory over sin as long as we let our flesh be crucified. God comes in, he says, I have made you a new creation. We have the power through God to be victorious over sin. Now the sad thing is most of us choose to keep sinning. You know, I don't know anybody who has stopped sinning anywhere in my life, anywhere in my 50 plus years of walking with God, I have not found anybody who honestly has stopped sinning. Now, I've heard people claim that they have stopped sinning, all right? Uh, some very self-righteous, pharisaical people. But when you got to know them, you go, you have not stopped sinning. 
you know, you may think that you have, but you have not. And the one thing I have learned over the years, just as Paul said, you know, Paul said, I'm the chiefest of sinners. And, you know, one of the things I'm learning, the longer I walk with God, the more I realize how sinful I am. And I've rocked out a lot of stuff that most people go, well, you, you're pretty good. You don't have all these other problems. And I'm going, no, you don't understand. God is showing me how sinful I am in my heart. And if I thought I could get away with it, how sinful I would be. You know, and how evil desires are in my heart. And this is what Paul is saying. The longer I've walked with God, the more I realize that I'm still just a terrible, awful sinner. The more we draw close to God, the more we really realize how evil we are. And this is what I've said many times. As I draw closer to God and he shines more light into my life, deep into my heart, the more I realize how deceitfully wicked the heart is, just as we're told in Jeremiah. The heart is deceitfully wicked above all things. Who can know it? And we think we're doing pretty good. God, I no longer drink. I no longer do the alcohol. I'm not running around anymore. I'm reading my Bible. I'm going to church. And we start thinking we're doing pretty good. And then God says, well, all right, let me get the 20-watt bulb out and put a 60-watt bulb in there and let you see how dirty things are. And I like kind of using that because if you think about your house, you cleaned your house, you've dusted it, and you got a 20-watt light bulb in there, and then you put a 100-watt light bulb in it, and all of a sudden you see a lot more dirt. But, and then, you know, let's say you got it cleaned to the 100-watt, and all of a sudden you put a 200-watt light bulb in there, you know, and all of a sudden, oh, it's still not clean. This is what God does to us. He says, okay, we got a little candle over here. Your heart looks a little clean by the candle light. All right, let's put a candelabra in there. Let's put, let's put 50 lights, uh, uh, candles in there, and... And how, how, clean is your, how clean is your heart? Okay, so we clean it up. And he says, okay, let me put the lighthouse light in there. <laughs> oh, no, get that one out of here, God. I don't want to see that part. And God does this to us over and over again. So the longer we walk with God, the more we're going to realize, hopefully, that we're still sinners and that we need God to be clean. Because otherwise, we end in self-righteousness saying, I've got it all put together. You all need to be like me. See, I, I've got, I don't lie. I don't steal. I don't cheat. I don't, and you know what? Don't, don't think about all the things I think about doing. Just think about all the things I don't do. And, and this is the problem. Yes, you know, and I think Paul was in the same place. He didn't go out and actively steal and, and commit adultery and all these things. But you know, when you draw closer and closer to God, the more you realize what his standard is to begin with. And he starts showing you his standard. And this is what Jesus said. He says, you have heard it said that if you, you know, do not commit adultery. He goes, I say that if you've looked upon a person with lust, you've committed adultery. If you've been angry at a brother without cause, you've committed murder in your heart. Jesus raised it to a standard that is just like, and, and that's only the beginning of the standard that he brings it to. And not only that, but he starts showing you all the things that you're not supposed to do at all. And this is where he takes you where, God, I've been able to do this for 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, 50 years. Why can't I do it now? You weren't ready to find out it was a sin back then. And he keeps raising the standard, raising the bar. But you know, this is how when athletes train, a good athlete doesn't say, well, I'm at the top of the, top of the pie, uh, top of the heap. I've set all the records. They go, all right, now I've got to beat 
that record and they try even harder. And God does the same thing with us. He says, all right, you've been okay. Now let me take you to the next level. Let me show you the next level. You thought you were okay here. Let's go to, to the next level. And he's going to keep doing this over and over for, with us. And then it says, And the servants conspired against him and slew him in his own house. But the people in the land slew them that had conspired against King Ammon. This was such a big deal. They went out and killed the king for whatever reason. It doesn't tell us why. They went out and killed the king. Remember, David would not touch Saul. Why? He said, I cannot touch God's anointed. He says, when God is ready, he will take him out of the picture. Ammon's servants decided they were going to be in God's place and take him out. We're going to get rid of him. We don't care that God create, you know, marked him. And of course, he's two years of leading with other gods, so it's not a surprise. But there's no honor, no commitment to the position and authority. And this is something that is really bothering me in our day and age as I'm watching the young people come up. There is no honor for positions at all. Whether they are good positions or not good positions really doesn't matter. And this is something for us. I was convicted many, many years ago, so this is taking us way past Biden, about my dislike and, and attacking of a certain president from many years ago. And God asked me, are you praying for him? I'm going, no, I want him dead. I want him out of office. He's a terrible, he's a terrible president. He's still a terrible president. But I was convicted of the fact that I never prayed for him. Now, we've had a lot of bad presidents since this guy as well. But the question is, do we lift up these, these individuals? God puts them in office. Now, we're going, well, we vote for them. Yes, we vote for them. But God is the one that allows them to take office. He's the one that puts them in office. And we need to be lifting them up. Because the sad thing is, we get the president our country deserves. As sad as that is as a statement, when, when we're living in a sinful life as a nation, we're going to get a president who will continue moving down that path. This is why revival is so critical for our nation. We need revival. We need the people to turn around and then we can start actually voting for people that are righteous, maybe. You know, maybe we'll get some of them to run. But, you know, this is a problem. And these men reached out and killed God's anointed king. His, the king that God put in place. Now, I'm sure they justified it. And how easy is it for us as Christians to justify doing wrong? We do it a lot. We do it all the time. You know, I used to tell my kids, and I was told by my dad, if you tell the truth, you'll get in less trouble than if you lie. <laughs> and, you know, it really is true, because once you do get caught, now you're in trouble for what you did originally, and you're in trouble for the lie, and all the other lies that you had to tell on top of that lie to keep that lie from coming out. But God is pretty much the same way. He's going, if you just confess, you correct yourself early on, you're not going to be digging a hole and having to climb out of that huge hole. There is consequence for sin. And this is the thing that is problem out there. Will God forgive all sin? Absolutely, he will forgive all sin. Will he forgive the consequences to the sin? That's another story altogether. 
there are all kinds of consequences for disobedience to God. And some of them are very serious. Some are pretty minor. Can God get rid of the, con you know, take away the consequences? He can. Usually he doesn't. He makes us go through the hardship of those consequences. Think about Paul, the Apostle Paul. He gets saved from killing Christians. God has ordained him to be a missionary to the Gentiles, and that's what he's told. He goes to talk to the church, and what do they do? Uh-uh, we're not talking to you. You're trying to kill us. You're trying to trick us. It took him a long time to get the churches to listen to him before he started planting them. And he only got listened to because Barnabas got to know him a little bit, realized that God had changed his life, and spoke for him to the disciples. And even when they brought him in, they were worried about, he just wants to find out where, he's, where we're at so he can arrest us. He's put on a long undercover uh, disguise on us. Consequences, long-term consequences can happen for sin. You know, all the Christians, would that still be, is God still going to punish him for that, but since he turned around, because he did kill all those Christians? What's First John 1, 9 say? If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to, yeah. just to forgive us of all unrighteousness. He, might, he probably will have lost some rewards for when he was supposed to be obedient. But he's not going to be judged for the sins that he did. And same thing for us. When we come to Christ and we confess our sins, God covers our sins. Now, the consequence is we may lose rewards for that period of time that we were living in that sin not getting the rewards we should have gotten. But God is not going to say, well, uh, sorry, you're going to, instead of being up on the third floor, you're going to be out, in the, out, of, out there by the outhouse uh, because of all the bad things you did. That's not the way he uh, it behaves. There's rewards for being obedient. But the, reward, the reason that we're not going to get the high reward is because we sacrificed the rewards in our disobedience, not because we were disobedient, the two years that I was backslidden and didn't go to church, I lost two years worth of rewards that I should have had. Now, God's not going to say, well, because you were sinful for two years, you know, you didn't come to church for two years, you're, 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 you've, lost, you've lost five notches. He's just saying, you didn't do the, what you were supposed to do for two years, you lost rewards. Does, it, does that understand what the, what the difference I'm saying there? All right. I'm not saying, well, this person went into sin, so all of a sudden you went, you went down five notches because you, because you were in sin. It's, you did not get to go up the notches for being obedient. If you don't repent, you're losing more rewards for all the time you don't repent. It's a, it's a very fine line of what I'm saying. Yes, in one sense, I've gone down because I didn't go up. I went backwards instead of going. Actually, rather than me going backwards, the rest of the world went forward. I am now able to use that as part of my testimony of having returned. Okay, so so there's the good that came out of that out of that out of that bad. What rewards did I lose during that time? I have no idea. For all things work together for good. So God has used this for being my example that I can't be self-righteous than anybody else. It is a very fine thing, and it's like when I was working in restaurants, people go, well, I'm just as good as I was last year when on, their, on their annual review, and I'm going, yeah, but the store's, the store's level is no longer where we were last year. We're up here, so you're not moving forward with us, so you're actually going backwards. They were, and again, they weren't any worse, but the standard had gone up, 
so that they were no longer a top employee they, because they just stayed where they were at. That's kind of what I'm trying to say about losing, losing rewards. I'm not, I'm not moving forward. So I lost two years of moving forward as well. Now God has used it and, and built it up, but where would I have been if I had spent two years moving forward? I can't dwell on that, but it's where we, where we end up at. You're not losing your salvation. You're not, you know, and God will turn it, turn it, will turn it around for good. Right, he'll turn it around for good. There will be, it'll be used as part of your testimony about how you were, you know, redeemed and, and brought back. You know, there's lots of things you get out of it. And yes, God knew you were going to do it, so you're, it's not, this is where we get into his perfect will and his permissive will. God has a will that this is what you should have done. Adam and Eve, you should have not eaten that fruit. I knew you were going to, so I arranged for my son to come and be a sacrifice so that you can be redeemed. But his perfect will would have been that I had never, never walked away, that they had never eaten the fruit. Life gets in the way. I got really busy for three weeks, and I haven't gone to church. And I was like, oh, I really should go to church. I just don't feel like going to church. I haven't been there in so long. I've been doing okay without it, so... And the next thing you know, you're, you're not there. And then God convicts you. And <laughs> but we need to be very careful because it's so easy to fall in, you know, find ourselves in sin. So easy. And, and like I say, I haven't met too many people, and I'm not going to say there isn't anybody that does it, I've, but I haven't met too many people in my life that just said, well, I'm just going to go out and I want to be evil from the, very be, from the very beginning. Now, I know toward the end in their sinful lifestyle, there are people that just say, I'm going to be evil because that's who I am. But most people didn't say, well, you know, I'm going to go out tonight and it's going to be the very first time I'm going to go, get, go, go drinking and I'm going to get drunk tonight. Now, I'm sure it happens, but that's not usually the way it is. Most people aren't going to say, well, you know what, I've been faithful to my wife for a long time and I'm just going to go out today and be unfaithful. It's usually a long process that laid, leads to it. You know, a long process of being neglected and being, you know, being, being ignored. And the next thing you know, somebody else is looking awfully good. They're nice to me. You know, my spouse hasn't been nice to me for months, you know, or years. And, and somebody's just nice to you. And all of a sudden, attractions draw in. Uh, it is so easy to slip away. And very few people actually decide, well, today I'm just going to go out and sin. Especially for Christian world. And... The world doesn't recognize it as sin. They just find themselves getting deeper and deeper into what they're getting into. The people of the land are going to make Josiah their king. And if you read, if, for those of you who read ahead, Josiah is really an old guy. He's eight years old when he takes the throne. And he's going to reign 31 years. And he's going to be, he is going to be one of, their, one of their great kings. Lord, we ask you to bless this time. We ask you to help us to learn to make righteous decisions and to follow you in all that we do. Help us to seek you and to follow you. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Listening, friends, where will you be when you die? We ask this question of a lot of people oftentimes, and the biggest answer we'll get is, I hope I will be in heaven. If hope is your answer, you don't know God, and that's is a problem. We all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The wages of the sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. If you do not know for sure that you're going to go into heaven, please today make your decision to follow him. It is simply just ask him, Lord, I am a sinner. Please come into my life and save me. 
and make him your Lord. If you've said that prayer, let us know so that we can send you a new believers packet. You can contact us at office at chloridebaptistchurch.com or even pastor at chloridebaptistchurch.com or you can just send us a regular letter at Chloride Baptist Church, P.O. Box 65, Chloride, Arizona, 86431. Thank you very much for listening and have a wonderful day.